So this week, I'd like to uh, to jump. It's, it's I don't know. It's called Palm Sunday, I guess, huh? And there's a lot of um, next week is. Pardon me, pardon me when I stumble and stutter about what next weekend is called. Obviously, we all know it is Easter. Um, I personally hate the word, but it obviously is the easiest one and the one to convey. Um, you know, it, it 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 fits our fits our culture, but it's you know the Easter came from the god the word Easter came from the goddess Estar. And that's why they named it that. That's why Constantine named it that. It was a, it was a day that that was um, already in the worship of pagan. Goddess Astar was the goddess of fertility. And when Constantine made became the emperor of Rome, and I don't know that he was a Christian, but he made Christianity the the official religion of it. He rather than causing conflict, he decided he would go ahead and just put them all together so everybody would be happy. So he decided to merge in the spring, which was when when the worship of the goddess Estar was, and when they um, that's why all the fertility things of eggs and rabbits, you know, because that was representative of fertility. And you know that so decided to he thought it would be a good idea. So I struggle with it, obviously, calling it Easter because. Even though we all grew up with that being somewhat of a of a religious name, for sure, and it is a religious name, I guess. It still is one that bothers me, but it's really resurrection. Resurrection Day would be the right one. And, and these are, you know, I, as an American culture, I hate the Easter part of it, but that we would honor Resurrection Day is a phenomenal thing as a culture. We we would honor that the death and resurrection of Jesus is a phenomenal thing. And that's a wondrous thing. And and I think that we should take that time to um, set aside a day. I mean, this is, you know, unfortunately, our culture is losing sight of what it's about and what it is. But uh, we need not to do that. We should should set it aside. It's not necessarily the day that Jesus was, his death and resurrection occurred, but um, but it's, an important important day to set aside and to recognize. Um, this day that he came in to representative this this week before this these days before the his death and resurrection, he came in to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And that was a big deal in, in Judaism. Um, that was that was one that they had that God had told them to to not forget. That was the Passover. Remember when they came out of, God said that I will, I will bring you out of Egypt, out of captivity. And in, in the only hope for your, um, the angel of death not coming over and killing your firstborn child, when the, if the angel of death is going to pass over your house, um, you need to do what I tell you. And doing what he told them was to kill a, a kid lamb or a kid goat and to spread its blood on the door, on the lintel, on the top of that door, on the bottom of the door, on the sides of the door, and to they had to eat the whole thing and burn everything that was left on doing it, and then um, they were going to flee the country, and, and it, was, it's a, it was a very important day in the Jewish culture. It's a very important day for us, okay? Because Jesus is, called himself, and is our Passover lamb. We no longer have to kill a kid and a goat and put blood on our doors. 
and doing it. But we need to not forget the Passover lamb. And, and we're supposed to honor it perpetually. Okay? So, that God told us to, and it too, it's just fulfilled in Jesus. It's not a representation through the, the lamb or the goat. It's now the fulfillment through Jesus. Um, that the blood of Jesus was shed so that our lives would be spared. So that we would be spared God's wrath and God's judgment. There's nothing more important to any of us that God was, that God did that, that Jesus came. The blood of the bull, the blood of the goats and the blood of the lamb didn't save those people then. Their obedience to God, their faith in God, their honoring God for what God told them to do saved them, okay? Same thing with us. That they were looking forward to the Messiah, to the sacrificed lamb. Uh, the true fulfillment of that, which was in Jesus. So Jesus is coming in to, to do this. I'm, I'm, I'm a bit solemn today in, in going through this story, so excuse me if I am. Um, but it is a pretty solemn story. I'm not sure exactly. We have a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of hoopla, and I don't necessarily want to go into it, that we've come up with on Palm Sunday. Um, but I just wanted to look briefly at what really happened on Palm Sunday, you know, to give us a picture. I've, I've found it profound in my life to go back historically and try to put myself as best I can in the setting of Jerusalem at the time. In the setting in Jesus' time, it's really helped me um, gain an understanding of, of Jesus. It's helped me as I read through the Gospels understand where he was coming from a little bit more. And I think it's really important. I think it's really valuable. If we if we took Jesus and his statements, his actions, and just planted in Haley right now and had him walking around doing what he did, a lot of it would be pretty abstract, you know, doing it. Um, but there was there was so much of it that was very relative to the Jewish culture at the time. Not that it's not relative to us, it absolutely is. Um, I am, the more that I read the Gospels, the more I read Jesus' response to his culture at the time, the more that I'm convinced that we look very, very, very much like um, the Jewish culture in Jerusalem um, as Americans. And so Jesus' response to them should be very sobering to us. And, um, and I think that that would be appropriate to read that way. Maybe now as much as any time in history, we look very much like them. So let's read it, see as he's coming in. The, the setting is Jesus is, we're going to jump obviously ahead. We're still in chapter 5 um, in the Beatitudes. But we're going to jump ahead and go to um, chapter 20, into chapter 20, chapter 21. And because again, I think that it's it's appropriate. This, this is a time, this week should be a time for all of us. Um, not necessarily because it was it, it, it was exactly a certain day. But I think that it's important for all of us to spend, to set aside, um, the same as we're to set aside a Sabbath. You know, Sabbath isn't, isn't just rest from work. Sabbath means to, to lay everything aside. And the laying everything aside was, um, yeah. <laughs> No, it's never happened. <laughs> yeah, that's the bad part. It was a coffee. <laughs> so, let's uh, let's read. Jesus, 
it's a profound thing to consider Jesus. Um, Jesus, at this point, is at the end of his ministry. Hopefully, we're going to spend the next few months in Matthew going through his ministry as he went. Um, we, we did go, spend some time going through his childhood and what little bit of information we have about that, um, his birth and, and a little bit about his childhood. And then it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a profound thing, you guys, to consider. I mean, when Jesus was 12 years old, he was in the temple, and, and he was just, I, I think he was just consumed. I know he was absolutely consumed in what was going on in Jerusalem. I have a feeling, I feel fairly confident, good chance it was his, prom, his first time ever in Jerusalem, okay? Just because told them to avoid Jerusalem when they came back from Egypt as a little two-year-old or whatever he was when he came out of Egypt um, because Herod Antipas, who was um, Herod the Great's son, was uh, ruling and he was even more tyrannical and killing anything that might threaten his kingdom. So they avoided it and went to Nazareth. Jesus said, God said to go. And Jesus spent his whole time there. He said until... This king died, and it doesn't say it in the Bible, but what it does say is, in, if you read Josephus, you read the history timeline, that when Jesus was 12 years old, just that year, um, most likely that year that he went to Jerusalem was that um, Herod Antipas had been, was gone, okay? So he was no longer there ruling, so it was safe for Jesus to go to Jerusalem. And you look at Jesus' response in Jerusalem, and he was... He was all about, right? He was absolutely consumed in what is going on here. And I'm sure it's million. I've, I've heard various um, figures, but there was somewhere between a million and two million people that showed up in Jerusalem for the Passover from all over. And yet the city of Jerusalem, the found foundation of the city of Jerusalem, the population was 100,000 or so. Okay, So this was a carnival, man. I mean, this was a... This was the zoo, you know, that, that came into Jerusalem. And, and I'm sure that it was more than ever really pronounced because they, you know, Herod, Herod had, Herod the Great had built this giant opulent temple, right? And, and so the Jewish culture was in a bit of a fervor about things are happening here, you know? Um, we're happening, you know? They, they were, they were ready for a Messiah. They had this new temple, so they were ready to, to, to make it happen. And, and then the king who had been put in place, Herod, and, and the Roman Empire said, no longer. So now you're going to have a guy named Pontius Pilate come in and he's going to rule as a rule, as a Roman authority. He's not going to be a king, um, anymore. But, so what, they, what are they looking for? They're looking for a Jewish king. They've got this new temple, looking for a Jewish king. There's just this fervor going on. The, the whole people, I don't know how many of those people went out to the Jordan and had been baptized by John. Um, for repentance, and, and that was the first prophet, remember, they'd had in 400 years. These people are excited. You know, they hadn't had a prophet from God in 400 years. That's more than any of their lifetimes, by ways, okay? So they're, they're, they're excited. All of a sudden, God is doing something. God is working. God is, you know, they're thinking God is showing favor on us. God, I, in that speculation, but I'm sure they probably are. Um, the temple itself was this was not only the original temple as God had told Solomon to do it and rebuilt, but it was about three times as big that Herod built. Okay, and and the in a predominance of that was this whole other section that was kind of courtyard stuff that was meant that where they were 
selling and trading, and it was a really good business. Okay? That they were selling, you know, because here's all these a million people or so or, or more come in from out of town. All right, that's a bunch of people camping out around town. You know, they probably didn't have porta potties even. You know, I mean, it's a wild deal. You know, doing it, and these people are camped all around doing it. Well, they they what are they there for? The Passover. Well, they're there to to sacrifice lamb. To you know, to to be at the temple. Where where are you going to get this kid goat? So you go and buy him. You know, they're there to do sacrifices in the temple. So they're buying doves and they're buying lambs and they're buying all these things. So this bustling business was happening in the courtyard. <coughs> it's a um, it's a pretty wild scene. Jesus had been there. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And it, it, Jesus spent from the time he was twelve, when he was very consumed in this, and and he was acknowledged by the scribes and the Pharisees as being very well learned in Scripture. They were they were amazed at his understanding, not only just his 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 knowledge of the Scripture, but his understanding of the Scripture. They were they were very amazed at it. Twelve. He spent eighteen more years after it. Okay, he spent 18 more years. I'm sure every bit is devout, maybe more than than the existing. Okay, than the beginning. So, so, so here in, it, he spent 30 years of preparation in order to, to minister for three. Okay, um, those three years were pretty focused, were pretty intense. Okay, um, Jesus had the you know the first time he came into the temple. Um, or the first time he came in Jerusalem when he began his ministry three years earlier than this, um, what happened? Remember he went and fashioned a cat of nine tails? Right? Fashioned a cat of nine tails and went into the temple courtyard where all this commerce was going on. And this is big. Again, there's there's a million to two million people in there that, that are coming in to buy and sell. And, and there's a huge money-making commerce that was going on and Jesus went in there and, and drove them all out with the cat of nine tails. Okay? Yeah, he, he fashioned the cat of nine tails in, the, in, in doing it. So, and, and so it's, I, I'll have to go back and find the exact verse, but that, that's when he went into the, into the temple the first time. Kicked over the, ta- kicked over the tables. This time he didn't fashion a whip. Um, I think it tells us partly he fashioned a whip because it wasn't a, it wasn't just a irrational I'm mad and I'm angry so I'm going to just in, in responding out of that he actually took the time to make this cat of nine tails which is got to tie it up and make a whip you know um, he was very calculated in what he was doing and went back in the temple and drove him out. Okay. I mean, that's a pretty, that's a really wild thing. I mean, you would have to think there was, you know, there was Roman guards at the time, there's temple guards, there's all the, there's, you know, a million plus people going on, okay? I mean, what, who is this stinking maniac, you know, that's doing this? So here comes Jesus again. He's heading back for Jerusalem. Only this, this three years later. Again, this is three years of ministry. And it's three years later. And he does some pretty wild things happen again. Um... And that's kind of where we pick it up. They're heading in for the Passover. I'm sure Jesus was pretty sober at this time. I'm sure he, he had a fairly uh, strong awareness that this was it. That he was heading into Jerusalem in order to be the sacrificial lamb. 
And, and remember, nobody under, knew that. Nobody understood that. He said, he said it to him. He said it directly, straight up. You know, he foretold his, his death and resurrection to the disciples. They still didn't get it. But he, he was heading in Jerusalem. And so we'll pick it up in verse 29 of, of chapter 20. Um, and as they were going out from Jericho, the disciples and, and probably other people following them, as they were going out from, from Jericho, leaving Jericho, heading up to Jerusalem, a great multitude followed him. Okay? A whole bunch of people. Alright? This is a procession. Okay? Now remember Jesus, one thing to, to notice about this and think about this triumphal entry, it's called oftentimes, in Palm Sunday and what happened there, is Jesus spent all of his ministry trying to be as, in, in a lot of ways, being incognito, right? I mean, he would heal people and he would, he would do miraculous things. He'd say, now you be quiet and don't tell anybody, right? Go, go do the temple sacrifices and doing it, but, but don't go telling people about this. You know, he, he didn't ever make a big scene. I mean, was there big scenes? Well, yeah, there was big scenes oftentimes, especially when they were trying to kill him and stuff. You know, there was big scenes. When there was 5,000 people or when he was feeding 5,000 on the hill, obviously that's a pretty big scene. He's trying to, he's trying to go hide away and goes across the Sea of Galilee and people know he's going over there and, you know, I don't know how many people, 5,000 men, you know, at one point, you know, did. So they're probably their families and kids and everything else. So who knows how many, 12,000 people? Who knows how many people there were? So there was obviously some scenes that happened. But Jesus never purposely, doesn't seem, ever really made a scene. Um, I, I'm pretty confident that when, as we read this, Jesus was, as I've said before, that Jesus' whole ministry to the Jewish nation was, was kind of God giving them, it seems, seems to me it's, it's pretty straight that God is giving them one last chance. Okay? Okay, you, you, you I, I've called you as my people, I've called you to Abraham, I've given, I've made a co- I've made covenants with you, um, you know, that we have this, we have these, all these promises. I've given you the Torah. I've given you the law. Um, I've, I've chosen you to, to be, to, to show my glory to this world. You keep refusing to do that. You keep failing to do that. You keep, um, becoming self-righteous and becoming religious. You, 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 instead of, instead of showing my glory to the world, again, I'm, I'm confident God didn't, God didn't want to say, oh, I just like the Jews a whole bunch and the rest of you guys are, forget, I don't want you, okay? God chose the Jews just like he chooses, chooses us as Christians, as the children of God now, in order to what? In order to, to be happy within our own little group and hide in our little circle and, and God to just make us all just happy little people or does he use, does he want us to show his glory to the world? Are we to be the salt and the light in this world? Right? We're to be the salt and the light in this world. Okay? He says a city on a hill. A lamp, you don't put it, you don't hide it. You put it on the table. It gives light to the whole room. A city on a hill is seen from everywhere. You know, we are to be the salt in the, in, in, of the earth. And he wanted the Jews to be the same thing. But instead, what did the Jews become? They became very introverted, very self-absorbed, very self-righteous, very exclusive. Okay? It was very contrary, I believe, to God's heart. Okay? Um, God chose them as a people to, to, to be the example of, of his children, of his people on this earth that are directed and led by him. Okay? And, and I think that they... No, I don't think. You can read the Old Testament for yourself. Okay? 
They perpetually were failing at that. Right? And God would say, come on, you guys. And, you know, if you don't, this is what's going to happen. I mean, the temple had been torn down. God had ended it a few times, right? Um, it, it's amazing. You read in Deuteronomy and God, and, and God is giving the law to Moses and he says, um, okay, if you don't keep my law, it's not going to go well. I'm going to send your enemies to, to, to destroy you, to tear down everything that you've built and to take you off in captivity, okay? If you don't, if you don't keep my law, it's not going to go well. We tend to, people oftentimes criticize the Old Testament as a harsh God. God was patient with that for 700 years. Okay? 700 years. Until he finally sent King Nebuchadnezzar and said, enough. I, I told you, if you do not keep my law, if you do not follow my ways, I will destroy you and I'll haul you off to captivity. King Nebuchadnezzar came in, hauled basically all, all but the, a few the beggars and people that, but all, all people, he hauled them off and then he came back, they were still, the ones that were left were still rebellious, came back, destroyed the temple, flattened it, leveled it, hauled off ark, who knows, nobody knows the ark is, but all the gold that was in it, I mean, Solomon's temple was pretty opulent, I mean, you know, it was, it was, it was wild, I mean, they were clear cedar, clear CVG cedar timbers, you know, that were there covered in gold, you know, and this is this is a pretty sweet place, and it's hauled off to Babylon somewhere, um, gone. And and so God God had continually tried to, and God carried came back again. He says, "Okay, I'll do you in a way you understand. I'll send John the Baptist ahead of Jesus, right? In in a manner that you understand. He's going to wear camel's hair, just like all prophets did, or most all prophets did wore camel's hair and a leather belt, and he's going to live in the desert and eat honey and locusts and be kind of a freak show." Okay, and and just like all prophets kind of were, you know, they were pretty wild men, and and I'm going to send him so you're aware. Okay, I'm I'm here to speak to you. I'm you know listen to what he says, listen to what he's saying, and what did John do? John was announcing Jesus, right? I mean, that's why when Jesus came up out of the water in the Jordan after baptism, the 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 issue was God said it, it. John saw the heavens opened up, whatever that looked like, and God spoke. The voice of God, like we all want to hear, you know. I'm not sure that we do, because it, it probably is pretty terrifying, I'm sure. But God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And there was no question in John's mind. You know, here was this John the prophet now who just heard directly with a voice from God, although I'm sure John perpetually heard from God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit um, in his mother's womb. Okay? So this was a guy who was pretty sensitive and heard the Holy Spirit. But here's the voice of God out there. So Jesus had been announced. Okay? The Messiah had been announced. Alright? And Jesus spent, Jesus now spent three years, had spent three years fulfilling Old Testament prophecy after Old Testament prophecy, out of Old Testament prophecy. He had been fulfilling them in what he did. Also showing the supernatural work of God. I mean, he'd been throughout the region of Israel, um, healing the deaf, the blind, the lame from birth. I mean, just the miraculous intervention of God. People would come and he would spend all day healing people, casting out demons, showing his authority over, over the demonic. I mean, was, for three years, had powerfully shown that he was. Okay? The multitudes were following him. Why? They believed he was the king. Right? 
They thought he was going to be the king. Problematic was that they had their presuppositions. Okay? Somewhat of a problem now, too. Okay? The, pe- the people who recognized Jesus, it's interesting to note, the people who recognized Jesus seemed universally to be people that had two things in common. One, they were very knowledgeable of the Scriptures, and two, they were led by the Holy Spirit. The Pharisees were very knowledgeable of Scripture. Okay? The scribes and the Pharisees both were knowledgeable of Scriptures, not led by the Holy Spirit in most cases. Some were, Nicodemus. You know, there were some that, that we are shown, and we know, were led by the Spirit of God. But the two characteristics that were very important those people had the same presuppositions, their cultural views of what the Messiah would look like, of what Jesus would look like. And let me guarantee you, I don't blame anybody for missing the fact of how Jesus was going to, how it was going to go down with his life, okay? Because when I read the Old Testament, I think, it's tough to see, you know? I mean, it's, 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 is it there? Absolutely it's there. The prophecy of Jesus as a suffering lamb that he was going to be crucified. It's all there. But you better be listening to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. You better be scripturally very, very literate, okay? Because it was tough to miss. So, it, which is true for all of us, okay? I don't, I don't blame them for, for, for having this view that when, when the Messiah came, I mean, they were, they were sold. They, they, they were locked into the fact that when the Messiah came, he was going to set up his rule and reign in Jerusalem and rule the earth, okay? And they were locked into that. Okay? They were, they were, that was their, their presupposition. Unfortunately, they were consumed by that presupposition rather than consumed by the Scripture and the Holy Spirit. Okay? And there were some that were, and that's why they got it. Okay? But most didn't get it. All right? Very important thing for us to be led by the Holy Spirit, not to be listening to me, not to be listening to to what the church says or what Christianity is supposed to look like or what our culture says Christianity is supposed to look like. We're all individually, God gives us this wonderful, marvelous, amazing thing of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, it was better that I go away because now I will send the Holy Spirit individually to all of you so we can have personal time with Jesus through the Holy Spirit, okay? And be personally led by Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It's essential for us, or we're going to get caught in our presuppositions and miss the heart of God and miss the will of God in that, okay? These people were all following Jesus not because they thought he was going to go die, all right? These people were all following Jesus because they thought he was going to set up his kingdom, all right? So, did Jesus know that? Yeah. I guess that's that's what's sad to me in my heart. I mean, here's here's Jesus coming in, kind of giving a last-ditch deal. All right. I mean, here's the king, a new king, this new authority coming into to Jerusalem. Now they were probably a little suspect. Again, but here's this king. Let's let's read what happens. Okay, as they were going from Jericho out from Jericho up to Jerusalem, a great multitude followed him. Behold, two blind men were sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, saying, "Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David." And the multitude sternly told them to be quiet. You guys are bugging us. But they, but they cried out all the more, saying, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. And Jesus stopped and called to them and said, What do you wish me to do for you? Then they said to him, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened. And immediately, with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. Okay? I think that's a really, 
I don't, I don't want to, you know, make a goofy extrapolation about something. It happens too often. But, but let me just say, that's a, how, how did Jesus respond when somebody says, I want my eyes open? Okay? That I'm willing to face truth. I'm willing to face the reality in front of me. I, I'm no, I no longer want to be blind. I'm not willing to remain blind. God, please open my eyes to truth. I think Jesus always, and God always responds to that with compassion. Okay? That's what God longs for. That's what He long, and, and He will open our eyes. Okay? And when they had approached Jerusalem, and had come to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus said to His, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there, and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anyone says, Something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place, that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Bring your king, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted upon a donkey, even upon a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did just, just as Jesus had directed them. And he brought the donkey and the colt, and they brought the donkey and the colt and laid and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitude spread their garments in the road. Garments, remember that's clothes, you know? Spread their, spread their garments in the road, okay? In, in the trail. Spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spread them on the road. That's where we get the, the name Palm Sunday. The concept is, well, there must only be palm trees in, in, the desert out there, right? So they were cutting palm trees and putting palm branches down so that you could walk on palm branches. Okay, doing it. What? Yeah. So they they were ushering suppose ushering in a king. Okay. This is this is a pretty wild one. This was fulfilling a prophecy um, that had been predicted a long time ago. The prophecy actually was from um, Isaiah. And from Zechariah, the two, they had been prophesied, you know, a long time before that this is the way it was going to go down, and this was the fulfillment of this. But let's just say, so here, Jesus, in a sense, okay, this is a big deal, okay? I mean, get the scene. There's a multitude of people. I don't know what a multitude is for sure, but thousands, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundred thousand, okay? People that were following Jesus into into Jerusalem, coming up to the Passover with him, and they were coming up to usher the kingdom in. They're going, yeah, we're on this train, right? The attitude was, if we read a little bit sooner, I mean, the attitude was going on through the ranks. Because um, remember, right before that, James and John came up to him, their mother came up to him and said, hey, come on, Jesus, we got a request of you. What? Well, when you set up your kingdom here, when you when you become king, can we sit on your right and on your left? You know, doing it. I mean, they, they, the, everybody, the disciples even, they thought Jesus was going to come in, set up his kingdom, kick the Romans out. I didn't sure I was going to do it, but this is going to rock and roll. Because they, they'd seen Jesus do some pretty wild things, you know. I mean, he'd come against the demonic, he'd, he'd healed people. They knew he had power, okay. And they figured he was going to, I don't know what, man, just, but run everybody out. It's a wild deal coming in. This was very contrast to the current day. I mean, how did a, uh, when the, when Roman kings came in, when the authorities, which were the Romans typically at the time, right, when they came into a city like that, 
the the ruler always rode. The authority rode typically on a stallion, you know, on a on a black stallion. Often, most often, okay. We have a story. I forget. There was one recently where we had a white stallion, but any it's a movie. So, but but anyway, we typically rode a black stallion, and and there was soldiers behind them with their shields, you know, and and this was a big display. Come marching in town, all right. You're on a black stallion here. Pardon me, or Jesus on a donkey, you know, doing it, you know, a little thing, you know, doing it. But but that was foretold. I mean, that that's the difference is is I mean, Jesus' humility. I mean, it's not you know, obviously this was the King of Kings, right? But he was coming as a sacrificial lamb. I mean, it should have you know, it should have been okay. What's he doing here, riding on a donkey? I mean, but people on the road coming into Jerusalem. I mean, this was huge. I don't know how many thousands of people were ushering him. They were laying their own coats down, their own robes down for the walk on. Okay. Hopefully, he done his business somewhere else. But you know, they were. I mean, there's in palm branches down, laying. Who knows what kind of branches? Fig trees branches were laying down so that. He'd come in. I mean, it was ushering him in as a king. They were bringing him in as a king. Now, was he coming in to set his kingdom up and establish his kingdom? Yes, he was. Absolutely, he was coming in as a king. Is he the king? Was he the king? Absolutely, he was the king. Okay? Unfortunately, it's a tragic thing because within a few days, they realize he ain't getting this done. Right? And did they stick with him and believe he was king? Or did he not meet their presupposition in spite of all, all that he had done to, to, to solidify, to make it clear to them that he was the king, right? In spite of that, they rejected him, right? All those people, those hundreds, the two million that were in Jerusalem for the Passover rejected him. Even his own disciples ran, right? Within a few days here. Because he did, didn't understand that he would be a sacrificial lamb in coming in. But Jesus, I am confident Jesus' heart was heavy. And it wasn't just because he was going there to die. What, what his heart was heavy was, was, was uh, I'm confident, was that this was the rejection of the nation Israel, as far as I can, can tell. This was, this was God saying, okay, I'm giving you one more chance. I'm going to make this really evident here. I'm even going to make a scene here, okay? Okay. I'm going to come riding in as the king, being heralded as the king. People were screaming and yelling and, and singing, right? Ushering him as the king. I mean, the, 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 the Pharisees and the scribes, I'm sure, were just livid. Oh, obviously, they were livid. Okay? It talks about him being livid. They were livid enough to kill him. Okay? But they were livid. I mean, this was their heyday. This was the Passover. Okay? This is when they were to be exonerated. Right? They were the, the scribes. They were the Pharisees. They were the priests. Okay, and every two million people were coming into town to to look up to them and to honor them. And here's this stinking guy from Nazareth coming in, stealing the show. I mean, and all the people are all hyped about it and excited about it and 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 singing Hosanna. Okay, Hosanna. You know what Hosanna means? It means save us. Okay, it means save us. And they're saying to this guy, save us. Save us from, what are they saying? I mean, they were excited. Save us from the oppression of the Romans. Okay? Save us from a bad economy. Okay? Save us 
physically and emotionally. We want you to save us. Save us politically. And they were singing, doing that. Is that what Jesus came for? He came to save us spiritually. Okay. That's what he came for at that time. Now, be very clear. Will Jesus come in on a white stallion at some point? He will. Okay? There will be a day when he will come in and kick butt and take numbers. Okay? I mean, we, we, we are assured of that. We're told in Revelation, it looks real different, right? When Jesus comes marching in with the big sword, alright? On, on, on the, on the target. There ain't no donkeys riding when he comes in, you know, doing it. I mean, he, and he will, and, and at that time, will he actually, at least as best we understand it, I would hate to get too much of a presupposition going because Revelation, I find a bit difficult at times to understand. But but it's, it certainly appears he's going to come in and establish his kingdom, right? And, and, and he's going to rule and reign. Um, I think it's from Jerusalem. I don't know. But he's going to establish his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign the world for the millennium, as we understand it, right? For a thousand years where he will set up his rule on the earth. And at that time, again, he won't be riding a donkey. He'll, he'll be coming in on a charger, um, doing that. But these people, they, because of their presuppositions, things go sideways. But he is giving Jesus, I'm sure his heart was, was just about broken. He was, had to be struggling. He wasn't going, gosh, look at this, they're all honoring me as the king. I'm sure his heart was just broken going, they're honoring me for the wrong reasons. You know, they don't understand and they're gonna reject me. And I'm sure he knew that. Um, but he was giving him one last chance. You guys see, I'm, I'm come, I'm gonna make a scene here. I'm coming in as king. Are you guys gonna honor me as king? I'm giving you a chance to do this, okay? And most, okay, uh, and the multitudes going before him, verse 9, and those who followed after him were crying out, Hosanna, the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred, saying, Who is this? Okay? Stirred, that, that word is the Greek word that we get seismic from. Okay? Moved is the word. Stirred is the word we get seismic from. Okay? We know what that's relative to. Earthquakes. Okay? Was it a physical stirred? Was it a physical move? No. But it was certainly an emotional, mental stirring. They were just... I mean, this is what the nation Israel had looked forward to. Always. Okay? They look forward to the king coming and, and them ruling and quit being oppressed. Why were they continually oppressed? Why were they continually beat down? Disobedience. What's that? They didn't follow God. That's right. Disobedience. God's discipline. God used their enemies to discipline them and continually to try to discipline them, right? And, and to try to... Why? Because God didn't like them? No, God loved them. God loved them. God called them His bride. God was, God was wanting them to come to a point of repentance, of being pure and being holy and having a right relationship with Him. Because God does not have an adulterous marriage relationship. Okay? Be very clear about that. God is a holy God. And to have an intimate, becoming one flesh relationship with God, there can be nothing between us. He, he only has that relationship in holiness, in righteousness, in purity. He does not, he does not become one flesh with a adulterous people. Okay? 
where there is sin, where our hearts are divided, where we have other gods before him. It doesn't happen. It doesn't happen with God. It doesn't happen in our own marriages. Okay? We cannot know the intimacy that God intended of being one flesh when, when we don't know purity in our marriage. Okay? And it's the same thing in our relationship with God. Okay? That's the example he uses. And, and it isn't that God is such a, uh, uh, just an arrogant God that has to have it his way. God knows. God is just God. God can't change. God can't diminish himself down to be a, to be covered in human whatever. Okay? God is not, God is God. In order to have an intimate relationship with him, a one flesh relationship with him, that we have to, we can't have anything between us. Sin, we can't have between us. Impurity, we can't have between us. And that's what God longed for. God knows the only way for us to have the relationship He created us to have with Him. To be one flesh with Him. To be intimate in a relationship, which should be the most profound thing in this whole universe to all of us. Why God wants to do that. But God, who created this universe, wants to have this intimate, unencumbered, nothing between us relationship where we are intimate in mind, body, soul, and spirit with God. In an intimate relationship with Him. And in that relationship, we cannot be adulterous. We cannot be in adulterous, impure relationships for that to happen. That can only happen in purity. That's what God longed for with His people. That's what Jesus longed for with His people. That's why Jesus died. That's, but that's why everything was looking forward to Jesus' death. People were able to live in that relationship with God even prior. And, and after that, we're able to live through Jesus in that. That's what he was longing for. This, this intimate relationship. And these people had all the appearance of a right relationship with God. They had the Torah. They had the new temple. They had the priesthood. They had all these things, all these rituals, all these rites. They were very... All his whole time, he was in a frustrated ministry of what does it mean to keep the Sabbath? What does it mean to wash your hands? What does it mean to be pure? What does it mean? And, and he was in a continual re-explanation. We're going to be back in, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is, a, which is a very important, essential expression of what does it mean to follow the law? What does it mean to fulfill the law? And that's why Jesus came. When he entered, the, entered Jerusalem, all, all the city, a million, two million people were stirred, were seismic, okay? were shaking, were quaking about what was happening here, okay? Saying, who is this? Who is this? Okay? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and cast out all those who were buying and selling in the temple. This is a big deal. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house should be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. Okay? This is the second time you've done that. Did you look up where it was? I saw you looking. And they were 
making money talking about and that's what they got. That was wrong. So oh, okay. Different Passover, first time. Yeah, it was three years before. Okay. So yeah, it was it was three years before when he came in the first time. Um, so and, and you know I'm sure that that had been festering since the first time he came. I mean it was it was it, it, I, I'll tell you what you know the first time he came to Jerusalem. I mean the way the best I can read from Josephus or from historical background the way they were doing the Passover. I mean when you when you read about it in the Old Testament what they did was was in their individual homes they sacrificed his lamb you know. And they and they killed it and and they put the blood on their doors and and did it and then they ate the family all ate everything they could eat and anything they couldn't eat they burned so it wouldn't rot going in the desert and sin. But now in the temple it appears that what they did excuse me they went in and there was thousands and thousands of people lined up with their little lamby or their little goatee that they just bought you know and they're all lined up there going up there and the priests are all lined up okay. And the priests have all got knives. And they're just perpetually coming because there's millions of them want to get this done. Now, if there's millions of them, let's just make a thing and say the families are families of 10 even. So let's just dummy it down to 150, 200,000 of them. Okay? You're going to kill goats and sheep. And, and this is, and, and they're coming up and, and the priests have a knife in their hand and they're bringing the goat, leading it up and, and they slit their throats. I mean, we tend to think of, you know, oh, this is kosher. Well, kosher means that it can't die right away. That it heart, its heart needs to keep going, so it pumps all the blood out of it. All right. So, so you you slight, you have to cut its throat. Is why that's what killing it kosher is, and they'll only do it so that the heart, there's animal still alive. They don't cut its brain off. They want its heart to still be pumping, so that actually it's pumping all the blood out of it. Okay, like this. So get this scene, man. I mean, there's a hundred thousand of these goats and sheep dying this way, and there's a line of priests right here, and they're pumping. And so you got one one priest coming up, and he's slicing his throat. And you got another priest with a bowl, and he's holding a bowl underneath it, trying to catch all the blood. And when he gets his bowl of blood, then he turns around, and he passes it off to these other priests, and they're chucking it on the altar, you know, burning it. I mean, this is a just think if we can on that scene, man. You know. What if, what if we saw that in a movie? We'd go, ha! <laughs> you know? I mean, I, I and, and Jesus, Jesus, when he's 12 years old, walks into this for the first time. I mean, Jesus was very biblically literate. Jesus knew the story of, uh, he knew Moses' writings well, right? It says, he, of the, his knowledge and understanding of the scriptures, and he's going, what is this? This doesn't look anything like the you know, this is mass production Christianity, you know, mass production Judaism, whatever. This doesn't look anything like what God wanted us to do here. And I'm sure that there was a whole bunch of things that he was going, what is this? I mean, I've, I've been reading about the temple my whole life, but, you know, growing up and he was very knowledgeable about what the Bible said and what the feasts are to look like and what the sacrifices are to look like. And all of a sudden he comes in and here's this, this mass production thing going on that, you know, and again, it wasn't a pretty mass production. You know, I mean, can you imagine the priest, like there's not going to be blood squirting everywhere. I mean, the priest's got to be covered in blood. I mean, this is going to be a wild scene. Yes, ma'am? And, 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 and here it is again, again, 18 years later, and I don't know how much different it did look then. I assume that it was looking then. So this is this, 
this this production, but this but the whole city, these million, these all these people, these millions of people were caught up in in in, in who's this Jesus guy? What is happening here? And here's this, you know, it wasn't necessarily wrong that they were selling doves and that they were selling goats and they were selling sheep, you know, to do that, to sacrifice oxen, you know. I mean, yeah, to sell it because, you you know, you're coming from outside and you need to do it. That isn't wrong. The problem is that their mindset and their hearts were profiteering off it, okay? Yeah, den of robbers. I mean, they were taking advantage of it. You know, it was just, it was sick. And here's the, supposed to be the leadership, the priesthood, you know, that, that's, you know, that's there. I mean, to me, it's somewhat like the current um, assault weapons rage that's nuts, you know. I mean, I, I have some of the same problems. I want to get a cat of nine tails with these guys that are going and buying a $1,500 or a $900 AR-15 and turn around selling up, you know, the next day on on the internet for $2,500 because you can't get it. I'm thinking, what are you doing? You know, everybody should have an AR-15. Why are you keeping the common man from doing it and making it prohibitive to do it? You know, why are you putting this burden on him to arm himself? Why is he supposed to arm himself, right? Because we all, all are supposed to be armed, okay? And we're supposed to be armed with weapons that are, give us the capability to stand up against a tyrannical government, okay? And yet here's people profiteering and making it difficult for those who want to do this to even do it. I think it's very wrong. Okay, you want to go? You want to go buy a Weatherby Mark V and turn around and sell it for twenty-five? Good luck to you. Go do it. You know, I don't care. But what we're all supposed to own is being an armed citizenry. I realize that's a rabbit trail, and you have to excuse me for venting. But that that that, that I, I I think that it's wrong to profiteer off something that's necessary, right? This is the same thing for them. They're profiteering off something that's necessary. God commanded them to keep the Passover, right? To come in and do this. And here's people making it a burden. But that's what they did with the law. That's what they did now with, with doing it. And Jesus was sick of these leadership of the people that, had, that were making such a burden on the people and thought to follow God. They were making this, this you know, unbearable weight and yoke through their, all their added laws. You know, as if, the, as if Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy don't have enough laws. Okay? I mean, some of you guys have been reading through them lately. There's a bunch of them there, right? Right? whole bunch of things. So what's the Jews, what did the Jews decide to do? Well, let's come up with the Mishnah. That's another, I forget how many thousand laws that, that add to it in order to interpret it, in order to enhance it, in order to make it better. Because we need some more laws, right? Because we're, we're, we got these hands, got these all covered, and we're doing all this. We don't have any problems. So we, let's have some more stuff for righteousness. I mean, it's insane just heaping upon people what they could do. Right? And Jesus was... Obviously, he was about done with it. Okay, This is his triumphal entry, but he's sh- displaying the fact that he is the king. I am the king. Do you want to serve me or don't you? Okay, It's kind of a, a last time. And Jesus entered the temple. He cast them out. He turned their tables over. It went, went wild. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall, not be, shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind man and the lame and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Man, now the Pharisees are really having a hard time. He just screwed up all their ability to make money, okay? I mean, this, this is looking bad. Now here's Jesus in the temple healing people of all things, you know? Healing, you know? Like, God really wants to do that, you know? He was healing them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the, what wonderful things he had done, I don't think they were thinking wonderful, but 
things of wonder, things of awe, that he was healing blind and lame people. I mean, this wasn't a pretense. Oh, I've got a headache. Oh, now I'm free from my headache. No, this is people couldn't walk. People couldn't see. And now they're seeing. And now they're walking. Okay, Just like the Old Testament said that the Messiah would come and do. When they saw the wonderful things that he had done and the children, to make it worse, crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the Son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast prepared praise for thyself? And he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and they lodged there. Now in the morning, now this is a story and we'll kind of hit on this and end on this deal because this is, now in the morning, you guys have heard this story, okay? I've heard this story all my life and it's like, wow. In the morning, he returned to the city. When he returned to the city, he went out to Bethany. He probably stayed with with um, um, his friends out there in Bethany, um, Lazarus and, and his family. And he became hungry and seeing a lone fig tree in the road, I guess he hadn't eaten breakfast, he came to it and found nothing on it except leaves only. And he said to it, no longer will there be any fruit from you. And at once the fig tree withered. I guess he hadn't had his coffee yet, you know. I, I don't know, you know, he, he, he seems a little testy, you know. I mean, it's always been really a difficult story for me because I, I don't, I don't like people who aren't happy in the morning, you know. I mean, it, you know, I, I, I don't do well with it, you know. Grumpiness in the morning is like, are you kidding me? You know, it's a new day, you know. I mean, grumpy in the morning, you know. I mean, it's just, and, and, and Jesus seems a little, a little grumpy in the morning, huh? You know, I mean, you know, he, he a fig tree, he walks up to it, didn't have fruit on it, he curses it and it withers. Whoa. <laughs> Somebody find him some coffee here or something, you know, doing it, because it's not going well this morning. And seeing this, the disciples marveled, saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered and said to them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you shall not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it shall happen. And everything you ask in prayer, believing, you shall receive. Why did Jesus get mad at the fig tree? He could have. It, it, it could have blossomed. Yeah, or he could have just reached in his pocket or something, right? I mean, it could have happened. What, what was the purpose of it? I, I think that it's... It's it's important to look at him because Jesus is making a profound statement about the nation of Israel, about the city of Jerusalem, about what was going on there. Okay, that, this is a this is a big deal. Figs were figs were a very common thing. Any of you guys know what this is? Some of some of you do. You know, we do, don't we? We do, don't we, Ray? You know, this is the pre-internet. Okay, the information thing. This is Google. See Earth. There's Earth right there. You know, Google Earth right here. Right, so my parents got my parents got these when I was a little boy, you know, and it, and it was all good. This is this is where you learned about life. I mean, you sit there and peruse it, you know, and it didn't even have any porn in it. I mean, th this was nineteen. The, the latest copy was sixty-seven, you know. So here it is, okay, 60, up to date. 
Yes. It's all good. I remember when we got these, man. I mean, I was 11 years old. My world just opened up, you know. I mean, you could sit there and look at that and just start, just look through it and go, cool, man. Look at this. I can look at it. So we didn't have the Internet. And it was a good thing. But anyway, let me look real quick here because I, I think I should have written it down. But fig. I was looking at, looked up fig tree. Okay. No, I didn't look it on the internet, so, so whatever, you know. Um, let, me just, let me just read real briefly, because it gives us an insight. Jesus never, we, we have to stand back, and even though it looked like he was irritated and mad and kind of pretty testy in the morning first thing when he was hungry and, you know, didn't have his, whatever, breakfast yet, you know, doing it, um, we can be really confident Jesus never reacted from that position. Okay? There was a reason and a purpose for what he did. Was he hungry? It says he was hungry. Okay? Was he bummed out about the state of Israel? We can be confident of that too. Okay? Did he just strike out in anger at this poor little... I mean, what... We should be careful because the environmentalists, they'll hate Jesus here soon, right? He just cursed this tree and it withered, you know, doing it. Um, for no purpose. I mean, killed it, cut down it. Killed a fig tree, you know, in the thing. Fig trees are very common in the East. It was a very common food. Um, but the growing figs, okay? This, this talking about figs in the in the but growing figs. This is this is an important thing because it was it, it's a very deep and profound um, illustration that Jesus made. We won't go into it all today, but I would ask you all to ponder it because. To me, it's, it's so many of what Jesus did that on the surface seemed like, what in the world? What were you doing? New fig trees may be grown by cutting two or three-year-old branches and planting them in the early spring. Okay, we, we, There's a lot of analogy about I am the vine and you are the branches. There's, there's, a, there's, there's a whole the whole spectrum of, of Jesus said, I'm going to graft in a new branch, right? I mean, this is this is... And if you don't produce fruit, what am I going to do? If a vine doesn't produce fruit, I'm going to cut it off. Okay? Fig trees supposedly they can grow, they can grow low, or they can grow into trees. They can grow into big trees. Okay? Doing it, um, you know, 20 foot wide, you know, 25 foot tall trees um, that are that for figs. Figs are, are wild, and the figs typically are one. And this this article doesn't say it, but I was reading another article and it was saying that. Figs are one of the few trees that actually produce their fruit prior to producing leaves. Okay? So, you know, magic. Okay? It doesn't mean that they don't have leaves. They don't do it. It's just they, 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 the fruit comes and then the leaves come and fill out the tree and covers the fruit as it's growing and maturing and ripening, whatever. Okay? So, but they can be, they can come from, uh, you, you can take, cut off a branch Stick it in the ground, it grows. Kind of like a willow. You know, you don't think of it. Like most trees, you do that, and it ain't going to happen. I mean, you'd have to graft it and be pretty good about it, okay? A little bit of horticulture involved. But um, the plant may produce a few fruits within the second or third year after planting. The fig is sometimes called a fruit without a flower. However, the inside of each fruit has several hundred tiny flowers. Um, the common fig produces two crops of fruit each year. The first crop, called the rabbi, is produced on branches made the previous season. The first crop matures in late June and early July. The second crop is produced 
on new branches and matures in late August and early September. Okay. So the truth is, what did what did what did you have here as you're walking in? You had this this tree that was covered in beautiful leaves that should have had what? Fruit. Okay. But it hadn't produced fruit. This looked like a fig tree, smelled like a fig tree, gave you the hope. What what was this people that Jesus was dealing with? Okay, who were these people that Jesus was dealing with? Was that would that be considered a hypocrite tree? It would, an acting tree, a tree that was pretending to be something that it really wasn't, a tree that had all the appearance of being lush and live and vital. Okay, giving you great hope of of what it had, and yet what was it lacking? Fruit. The whole New Testament is about us producing fruit. He says you will know them by their fruit. Right? You say, well, we can't know if you're a Christian. That's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, you will know them by their fruit. What happens when you come on a tree and it doesn't have any fruit? You know, it's a false hope. And, and, and how did Jesus feel about, I mean, the day before he cleaned the temple out, right? There was a bit of false hope going on, right? They were, they were saying, we, we are here to lead you into relationship with God. Is that really what they were there for? No. They had all the appearance of serving God, of being people of God. They had the Torah. They had every opportunity, right? In the priesthood, in the leadership, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all the leadership had, had the opportunity to lead people in truth and lead them in the way of God. They had God's Word. They were God's chosen people. They had the Spirit of God. They had the miraculous glory of God shown to them time and time and time and time again. Okay? And yet, what were they? They were, they were a fig tree. It looked like it had all the, the great story of hope and yet there was no fruit. That's why Jesus did it. That's why Jesus cursed it because that, that was an example. The fig, the, the, the fig tree is the, is the representation of Israel. Okay? You know, you've got Russia's the bear, right? I mean, you've got, you've got, you know, the American eagle. The fig tree is actually the representation of Israel. Right? And, and here's this fig tree, and fig trees were common. People ate figs. They were, they grew all over Israel. And, or all over that region anyway. What's that? Adam and Eve used fig leaves. I mean, there's, there's the other analogy of that do and covering themselves, right? Covering this and doing it. They, it's, it, um, there's, there's, let me just say, there's a whole bunch of things about how they should have produced fruit in three years. How there really was no excuse for this to happen. Doing it, okay? Um, who knows? I mean, this, this might have been a tree that three years earlier, Jesus cut some branches off and stuck it in the ground. It was a lone fig tree all by itself. Okay? Growing. I mean, I don't know. That's pure speculation. But what I do know is tree should have produced fruit. Should have had fruit had all the evidence of producing fruit, being green, lush tree covered in leaves, and it had no fruit. And what did Jesus say? Boom. I'm going to cut you off. You're done. Okay? Cursed it. The same way he was going... The same thing that happened to Israel, God's chosen people. And he was, he was hurt. He was bothered by. He was troubled. Um... 
and he and he cursed the fig tree. So this, this is the this is Palm Sunday. Kicked strangers out, did it? Came riding in on a donkey. Um, he's going to spend the week there, right? He's going to spend the week there, and, and next week we'll talk about you know when they, when they met in the Last Supper, you know, to do the Passover. Um, They'd combine their feast of unleavened bread and Passover, the Jews had at the time, but to do the Passover feast when he became the fulfillment of that. Tremendous, tremendous prophecy fulfilled in this week. I mean, it was the fulfillment and the hope of all mankind. The hope of the gospel was made complete in this week doing it that Jesus did. But he, he spends a week in Jerusalem. Didn't go well. A lot of guys got mad at him. You know, it says that they were indignant. I think that's putting it mildly. Okay? They were indignant. By the end of the week, they killed him. They crucified him coming in this week. So, I would challenge you this week to, to make it a Sabbath week. To make it a week when we, we take time and set aside time to think about um, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what happened. I'd take the time to read it in the Gospels. Okay? Um, one of the Gospels, when you read it, don't get confused, it says... That the, the tree didn't have fruit on it. What may, what's one of the troubling things for us? Why it seemed like he really didn't have his coffee is because he, one of the gospels makes the inference that because it was not its season, okay. Um, but that doesn't mean that. Well, that would be completely unfair, right? It wasn't the thing's fault because it because it was in its season. It should have had fruit on it. I'm doing it, okay. B. Clear. This is Jesus' final statement about the nation Israel that were hypocrites. God says that we. It isn't a matter of what you say. It isn't a matter of how you look. It isn't a matter that how you that you appear to be a fig tree covered with leaves, having fruit. The only thing that matters is your fruit. God, Jesus is very, very um, straight up about that. You will know them by their fruit. He will know us by our fruit. It's not what we say with our mouth. It's not how we look on the outside. But what is our life producing? Um, Jesus makes a pretty strong statement here about how he feels about that. Our life producing the fruit that he says they need to produce? And if not, we should worry. We should worry. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you gave us this record of Jesus. I thank you that you showed us your heart. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The heart, your heart, your character, your nature, how you respond, how you feel about things was emulated, was shown, was displayed truly and rightly in Jesus. And when we see his response, we see his actions. Um, even though at times they might be confusing, we can be confident that they represent your heart. And when you see a, when Jesus saw this nation Israel that had all this opulence, it was a couple million people showed up to supposedly in your name worship you. In this new magnificent temple that was, that rivaled Solomon's temple in every way as far as beauty and grandeur. And, and, there's all these people supposedly in your name here to worship you. 
And they were this fig tree covered with fig without fruit. His heart was broken. And he was angry. God, please cause us to realize that it's not the outer that you care about, that you look like, that we're supposed to put our attention on. It's the inner man that you care about. This tree seemed to root, wither from the roots out because its roots were bad. You care about our roots. You care about our hearts. I think that you, that you did go ahead and die in spite of it. I think it would have been really easy to, to, to leave, to transport. Say, I'm done. God sent another flood. But you didn't. You died. You, you took the suffering and it, and Jesus, I'm confident it wasn't the, the physical torment, that was great. The physical beating, the physical suffering. I know that was great. Beyond what is bearable. But I also know that the taking on the sin of all of us puts you in the rejection and scorn and under the wrath of God when He put that on you. And He turned His face on turned His back on you. And you'd never known that. And that's what you dreaded. That's the cup that you asked to be passed. That's what you dreaded is that your father would, would turn his back on you, would reject you because of the sin of mankind on you. That tormented soul that caused you to, to, to sweat blood literally in the garden. I ask you to cause us all to reflect on this day, it's a, it's a wondrous thing that you've allowed us to grow up in a country that still honors your death and resurrection as a holiday. I know that we've moved away and now it's spring break where, where we go and, and participate in drunkenness and sexual immorality. That's what spring break's about. Go get warm. Make me feel good. Go do something that is self-oriented, not honoring you. It's a wild tragic thing that we have taken this holiday and turned it into a decadent, hedonistic, narcissistic, drunken revelry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But we are your people. And I ask that you would cause us to consider that that's what this day is about. Not leaving on a selfish vacation. Not that vacations are wrong, but that this day is about consideration of what you did, what this week was about, the Passion Week. Cause us to free ourselves from the religious bondage that lies and gives us presuppositions about things that aren't different than what they really are. God, please cause us to seek your truth and your word. Cause us to seek the revelation of your Holy Spirit and the enlightenment of your Holy Spirit because that's essential for us to come to understanding. If we do not come to the end of this week understanding what happened, we are not saved. So God, I ask You to cause us all to understand what happened and the value and importance and essentialness of it. I thank You for the privilege and honor of doing that, giving us the books, giving us reading, 
giving us your Holy Spirit, giving us each other. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to ride in on a donkey, to take the scorn and the shame, to give us all a last chance, to give us all hope. Amen.